Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. In 2020 and 2021, the federal government made billions of dollars available to businesses to help them get through the unparalleled challenge that was the COVID-19 pandemic. Most of you have heard of the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, uh, but there are other programs as well that came to provide funds to companies of a variety of sizes. The programs required recipients to meet certain terms and conditions, and most of those programs are wrapping up, but unfortunately that doesn't mean it's the end of the story for those programs. Federal agencies are now doing investigation into how those funds were used. Uh, They're investigating and sometimes prosecuting companies based on alleged misuse of those funds. So we're going to talk about today are the risks that companies face that have taken COVID relief funds and how to manage those risks. I'm really excited about the guest today. Um, Britt Biles is a white-collar criminal defense lawyer who's a brand-new partner at Womble in our D.C. office. Uh, While she's new to Womble, Britt has a lot of background with government investigations and white-collar criminal defense. She's a former general counsel of the Small Business Administration, uh, which was one of the key federal agencies administering COVID relief funds. So we're really lucky to have her here, and I can't think of a better person to talk about these issues. Britt, so happy to have you join us today. Thank you, Mark. I'm happy to be here. That's great. Let's. T- I, I mentioned your role at the uh, SBA, but give us a little bit of your your background in terms of your practice, and tell us a little bit about what you'll be doing here at Womble. Thanks, Mark. My practice is focused on representing and advising corporate and individual clients in high stakes government investigations, enforcement actions, and bet the company litigation. As you mentioned before I joined Womble, I served as the general counsel of the Small Business Administration during the pandemic, but I've also served in senior legal roles at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission and the White House, as well as having represented clients in private practice and government investigations and high stakes commercial litigation. Great. Now, that's good. I also understand our listeners may have a chance to hear more of you. I understand we're going to be uh, starting a white collar crime podcast and you're going to you're going to play a pivotal role in that. Tell us just a little bit of a teaser on on that. I am. Yeah. So uh, the the white collar team here at Womble, building on the success of your in-house roundhouse podcast, is launching a white collar and government investigations podcast. We have a great series of episodes planned and some wonderful guests lined up. So stay tuned for insightful podcasts on cutting edge topics in white collar and government investigations. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And and listeners will know we've had we had Joe Whitley and Luke Cass give a presentation earlier. Claire Rauscher's been on this program and you've got a great group there on the white collar uh, team. So I think folks can look forward to hearing a lot of important information from that podcast. So that's that's great. And uh, I'm, I'm excited about it. Let, let's jump in, Britt. I know we, I mentioned your service on the SBA. Can you remind us what role the Small Business Administration played in issuing grants, particularly the COVID relief programs, just to remind folks, you know, what they were doing and what kind of things are out there? Of course. So in 2020, the CARES Act, which was the first big federal response to the COVID-19 pandemic, 
made SBA one of the lead agencies in the economic relief programs. The CARES Act gave SBA an enormous remit. SBA was responsible for implementing and administering trillion-dollar loan and grant programs, including, as you mentioned, the Paycheck Protection Program. And importantly, these were not just small business programs. These programs were touching every corner of the American economy, public companies, private companies, big businesses, small businesses, nonprofits, independent contractors, all were clamoring to access these brand new pandemic programs. And SBA was working closely with Treasury, the Federal Reserve, and private financial institutions, both traditional banks and fintech concerns, to push capital into the American economy to stabilize it during the pandemic. Unsurprisingly, SBA was under intense pressure and faced unparalleled levels of scrutiny from Congress, the media, and the public. Its legal needs were immense and unprecedented. I I was appointed general counsel in April 2020 to manage those legal needs. (laughs) That timing, I'm sorry to interrupt with a chuckle, but that just, talk about coming in in the absolute frying pan stage of the agency, right? I mean, you just have everyone clamoring for help, everyone wanting the SBA to do something, and all of a sudden you drop in, you know, as general counsel. That's got to be, you know, a, a real challenge. If you can do that, you can do anything. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun, but it was a challenge. I was leading the the legal department as the agency was standing up and operating these brand new COVID-19 economic relief programs. And we were in the middle of a global pandemic with, with most of the workforce working remotely. So it, it was a trying time, but we were uh, very invested in the mission. Great. Um, I know now you're coming to private practice. How did that experience prepare you to work with clients now that you're you're on the right side of the fence in, in private, you know, in private practice helping helping folks here? Well, well, Mark, I was tapped as SBA's GC in part, I think, because I was an experienced litigator and white collar lawyer. When I was appointed GC, I already was a veteran of the Division of Enforcement at the SEC and the Office of White House Counsel. And in private practice, I'd represent clients in congressional investigations and enforcement actions by various state and federal agencies, as well as private party litigation. So I had that background that I think was very helpful to my role as GC, but but nothing can really prepare you for that. My I was in a trial by fire every day. Um, there were multiple complex issues and difficult strategic calls. I was as much a crisis manager as I was a legal advisor. So that really did prepare me for coming back to private practice and helping clients through incredibly challenging times. My work at SBA involved core white collar issues. I worked closely with senior officials across the federal government, DOJ, Treasury, the SEC, the IRS, and we were establishing data sharing and cooperation agreements to facilitate the investigation and prosecution of fraud and abuse, the very things that are happening right now with these programs. I also developed the SBA's legal strategy for responding to congressional oversight. I prepped senior agency officials to testify before congressional committees and provide staff briefings. I dealt routinely with the House Committee on Government Oversight and Reform and the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis. So the work that I was doing at SBA as general counsel really was core white collar and investigations work. And that translates directly to what I'm doing now on private practice for clients. 
That's great. That's great. Well, it's good. <laughs> again, again, it's nice that people know who to call when they have those issues. Um, let's take a step back. Can you remind us what the status of the various COVID-19 relief programs are now? Is money still going out or is everything wrapped up at this point? The lending and grant making portions of these programs have wound down. For example, the last of the SBA programs for COVID-19, the Economic Injury Disaster Loans, ended on December 31st, 2021, but the work of the programs is far from over. At SBA, for example, there remains a lot of ongoing work with PPP loan forgiveness. If you look at the SBA's latest stats from December of 2021, forgiveness applications had not been submitted for more than 2.3 million PPP loans. That may not sound like a lot, but that represents nearly $130 billion in loan value. And And that sounds like a lot. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of money that is still to be unforgiven. Yes. And and borrowers have as many as five years in some cases to seek um, forgiveness of those loans. Plus, there's an administrative appeals process for borrowers who've been denied forgiveness. And that's an administrative process that ultimately culminates in federal court. Um, And I was actually involved in overseeing the design and implementation of that appeals process. But the forgiveness piece is going to be going on at SBA for a long time. But but more significantly, I think, for most people, when you're talking about the white collar spaces, the federal investigations and prosecutions that have arisen from the COVID-19 economic relief programs, and those could go on for years. And this isn't just the SBA programs, but all of the the COVID-19 economic relief programs, including those administered by the Treasury Department, the Department of Health and Human Services, and the Department of Labor. I, I think those investigations and prosecutions could go stretch out for years. We saw that in the case of the TARP and the, the bailouts that were passed in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis. Gotcha. So that this is something folks will be dealing with for some time uh, to come, it sounds like. Um, mentioning time, is there some limit for how long the government has to go after folks? In other words, if people got their loan and are now worried that maybe things weren't 100% accurate, can they rest easy now? Will they ever be able to rest easy? What, what do things look like in terms of statute of limitations or whatever the, the right parallel is for, for government action? Well, the statute of limitations is the right measure, and and that really is um, what determines how long the government has to pursue investigations and cases. And of course, the availability of resources for the federal agencies to investigate and prosecute. But let's look at the SEC, for example. If the SEC wanted to charge a public company that received a PPP loan or participated in the PPP loan program in some fashion, like hypothetically, if there were disclosures that the company made in its public filings that didn't match the disclosures that were made in connection with obtaining a PPP loan, the SEC would have up to five years and potentially as many as 10 years to uh, bring an action for that type of a case. It just depends on the type of relief that the SEC is seeking and the type of charges they're bringing. Gotcha. And we're still less than two years out from the disbursement of those first CARES Act funds in April 2020. So a lot of time remains for the federal government to take action. And of course, the federal agencies always have the option of seeking tolling agreements as well. Gotcha. You mentioned the SEC, and I guess I hadn't thought about them first when I think about COVID relief. Are there other agencies in addition to that, in other words, does the SBA go after folks? Does the SEC, are there other entities that maybe people need to be thinking about? 
there are a lot of federal entities investigating COVID-19 relief programs. Um, there are various congressional committees involved in this space. For example, the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis was actually created for the purpose of overseeing the economic relief programs. And that subcommittee has been conducting investigations throughout the pandemic. And right now they have active investigations into fintech lenders and their potential role in alleged PPP fraud. There have also been investigations of government contractors by the House Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Crisis. So that's been a pretty active group. And more congressional investigations of any type pose special risk for for businesses and individuals because they're high profile and they can inflame the public. Hmm. For example, targets of congressional investigations typically fear damage to their market caps if they're publicly traded, and they also fear potentially being legislated out of business. So, so the House Select Subcommittee and various other congressional committees are obviously high-risk investigative bodies, and they've been very active in this space. But in addition, the, the inspectors general are very active in investigating uh, COVID-19 fraud and abuse. There was a special inspector general for the pandemic that was created in the CARES Act. Um, that's the special inspector general for the pandemic response. That office is investigating the COVID-19 programs that were operated by the Treasury Department, such as the loans that were made to the airline industry. Um, that office, which is known as SIGPER, is working very closely with the Department of Justice on those types of cases and investigations. And a number of criminal referrals have already been made that have resulted in prosecutions. And of course, the inspectors general, the various federal agencies that administer these programs are also doing their own investigations. For example, the SBA's inspector general is conducting investigations and working very closely with the criminal division at the Department of Justice. There's also a committee of uh, inspectors general that was created by the CARES Act called the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee. It is more commonly known as the PRAC, and it was a committee that we dealt with at the agency a lot. Um, but the PRAC right now has a COVID-19 fraud task force and is bringing in special agents from across the government to investigate potential fraud and abuse. And then those cases get referred to DOJ for prosecution. And of course, DOJ and the FBI are conducting their own investigations and bringing their own cases. And DOJ civil and DOJ criminal are very active in this area. The SBA had worked out data sharing arrangements with both of those groups at DOJ to provide information on the, the loans that were made. And, and you mentioned the SEC. You said that the SEC isn't one that you would often think about in this space. And that's true, but the SEC has had a COVID-19 task force from the very beginning of the pandemic, and it brought a very early case against the Cheesecake Factory for not properly disclosing the pandemic's impact on the, the restaurant chain's business. But the SEC has not yet publicly delved into violations associated with the economic relief programs themselves, but that doesn't mean enforcement isn't investigating the SEC could bring a case at any time. They've also had access to, to data involving these programs. Wow. Well, a lot of people out there that can do, uh, with a lot of power, that can do a lot of either investigation or create risk for folks. So I imagine some of our GC listeners are a little concerned about the, the scope. Let, can you touch on, I guess, the range of sanctions? Because you mentioned civil action, criminal action, um, you know, various inspector general type actions. What, broadly speaking, what, what are some of the, the types of penalties that 
folks face. I assume perhaps disgorgement of loan proceeds is one, but they things may get worse. Tell, tell us tell us about the range that folks may need to worry about. Well, obviously, if there's a criminal prosecution that involves jail time, penalties, and of course, the stigma of being criminally prosecuted. And, and DOJ has a, a focus now on holding individuals accountable because Obviously, a corporation can't commit a crime on its own. It has to commit the crime through individuals. So the DOJ is very aggressively pursuing corporate crime and seeking to hold the individuals in the company accountable for that conduct. So there's no real parallel to the risk that are created by criminal prosecution, but the civil risk can't be understated either because oftentimes a government investigation will create a host of other problems for a company that can create existential risk. For example, um, private litigation often spins out of government investigations by opportunistic third parties. We're talking about things like Keytown whistleblower suits, securities class actions, commercial disputes. And when you have a lot of those different pieces of litigation working with government investigations and enforcement actions, the risk for the targets are very, very high. For example, during the subprime crisis, it was very common for a target of a government investigation or enforcement action to face related litigation from a customer or a business partner who would base their own private claims on the fact that the defendant was also the target of a government investigation. I handled a case involving an FTC investigation, a Federal Trade Commission investigation, where um, multiple commercial arbitrations with business partners arose, and there was a putative securities class action, and it was all based simply on the fact that the the defendant was also a target of a government investigation. So the the answer really is investigations and litigation beget investigations and litigation. So the risk of criminal are are substantial, but then there are also substantial risk if you have a lot of multiple actions working together. Gotcha. Okay, that 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 makes sense. Um, do you have a sense of if I'm an in-house counsel and I know I took some of these, you know, the the money, how to prioritize it in terms of what what are the things I should be, you know, most worried about, I guess, or or looking into. If I haven't, I'll I'll ask you next what happens if they're already the subject of a investigation. But if you haven't yet, are there either checklists or things that your your general your company that took a PPP loan, for example, took some other funding. Are there things that they should be thinking about or worried about now? Or how do you how do you prioritize the, the likely exposure? What, what advice would you give those folks? Well, my primary advice for any company, whether or not they participated in the COVID-19 programs, whether they're a borrower, whether they're a lender, or whatever type of business they are, is to always think about your compliance program. The government is keenly focused on the design and operation of compliance programs right now. Um, So it's always important to be thinking ahead to what you would be saying and what you would be presenting if you were the subject of an investigation and having a strong functional compliance program is is always a primary part of the defense. Gotcha. No, that makes sense. And I know that's something we've talked about in previous episodes of this podcast. You really have to make sure your compliance program is is working. People are doing what they're supposed to be doing. You've got uh, you know, that program in a robust in a robust fashion. 
What if we're one step beyond that and you're actually getting notification about some investigation, prosecution, get a summons, you get a notice they're coming in to collect your computers or your files? Um, what, what should companies do if, if they're facing that kind of action? Retain experienced counsel who can spearhead a comprehensive strategic response. And what I mean by that is a company or individual, when they're involved in an investigation, needs to make sure that the lawyers that are leading the charge can foresee and understand the various integrated risks that could be associated with a government investigation. Um, Government investigations are tricky matters that carry reputational risk and they can spawn additional litigation as we just discussed. So the last thing a company or individual needs is a lawyer who takes a position in investigation, which might be the right position for that particular matter, but nevertheless increases the likelihood of other actions prejudices the client in some way or does reputational harm. So it's really important in these types of cases to have an integrative response and the ability to see around corners. And finally, I would say that whenever you're approached by the government, you need to think about offense as well as defense. In my experience, so many companies and individuals become overly defensive and improperly aggressive or they cower in the face of the federal government. In my opinion, neither is the right approach. Be prepared to engage with the government, tell your story, provide context, push back on claims that are legally or factually unsupported. And this is really where a good compliance program comes in because you wanna be able to tell your good company story while strategically and effectively challenging the government's positions. Great, good advice. Good advice. Well, and I think folks know know you're one of the people to call when they need that help. So that's it's great to have that uh, capability. Um, you know, again, I'm excited that you're part of the white collar team. Can you give our listeners a little preview? I know we teased about the podcast at the beginning, but what what can folks expect from the white collar team uh, as we move into 2022? Well, uh, we're actively representing clients on a range of issues related to the COVID-19 programs, and we have such a great team here. It's a very deep bench. We have former U.S. attorneys from multiple jurisdictions. We have veterans of Maine Justice, the White House, the SEC, as well as various senior state government officials. So we really have a lot of capabilities. And and I'm really proud to work alongside of folks like Joe Whitley, who's a legend in the white collar bar, and the people here at Womble, like Jim Cooney, Claire Rauscher, Ripley Rand, and Kathy Hinger, who've long made Womble a go-to for clients with white collar issues. And we are continuing to build out that capability. In addition to my recent arrival, we also have a newcomer, Luke Cass, who brings a lot of experience from 11 years at DOJ. So I'm really excited for what we as a practice have to offer. And I think that we are well positioned to help clients navigate the challenges that they face in a post-pandemic world. And as I said, you'll be hearing a lot more from us. We have uh, a podcast coming out that we're very excited about, and we have some great speakers lined up. We we plan on hitting on core topics like anti-money laundering, congressional investigations, RICO, inspectors general investigations, data analysis by federal agencies. So we have a lot on deck, and we're really excited about it. 
That is fantastic. That's fantastic. Well, we certainly look forward to hearing more from you and the White Collar colleagues as we move into the new year. And I'm, I'm especially excited that you're here with us at the firm. So, Britt, it's great. Great to have you here. Um, that does bring us to the end of the show. I'll remind our listeners you can find previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse and subscribe to the podcast at our website, Wombleborn Dickinson. You can also find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station.